a hundred times more interested in themselves and their wants and problems than they are in you and your problems. A person's toothache means more to that person than a famine in China which kills a million people. A boil on one's neck interests one more than 40 earthquakes in Africa. Now think of that the next time you start a conversation. Principle four, be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. Chapter five, how to interest people. Everyone who was ever a guest of Theodore Roosevelt was astonished at the range and diversity of his knowledge. Whether his visitor was a cowboy or a rough rider, a New York politician or a diplomat, Roosevelt knew what to say. And how was it done? The answer was simple. Whenever Roosevelt expected a visitor, he sat up late the night before, reading up on the subject in which he knew his guest was particularly interested. For Roosevelt knew, as all leaders know, that the royal road to a person's heart is to talk about the things he or she treasures most. The genial William Lyon Phelps, essayist and professor of literature at Yale, learned this lesson early in life. When I was eight years old and was spending a weekend visiting my Aunt Libby Lindsley at her home in Stratford on the Housatonic, he wrote in his essay on human nature, a middle-aged man called one evening, and after a polite skirmish with my aunt, he devoted his attention to me. At that time, I happened to be excited about boats, and the visitor discussed the subject in a way that seemed to me particularly interesting. After he left, I spoke of him with enthusiasm. What a man! My aunt informed me he was a New York lawyer, that he cared nothing whatever about boats, that he took not the slightest interest in the subject. But why then did he talk all the time about boats? Because he is a gentleman. He saw you were interested in boats, and he talked about the things he knew would interest and please you. He made himself agreeable. And William Lyon Phelps added, I never forgot my aunt's remark. As I write this chapter, I have before me a letter from Edward L. Chaliff, who was active in Boy Scout work. One day I found I needed a favor, writes Mr. Chaliff. A big scout jamboree was coming off in Europe, and I wanted the president of one of the largest corporations in America to pay the expenses of one of my boys for the trip. Fortunately, just before I went down to see this man, I heard that he had drawn a check for a million dollars, and that after it was canceled, he had it framed. So the first thing I did when I entered his office was to ask to see the check, a check for a million dollars. I told him I never knew that anybody had ever written such a check and that I wanted to tell my boys I'd actually seen a check for a million dollars. He gladly showed it to me. I admired it and asked him to tell me all about how it happened to be drawn. You notice, don't you, that Mr. Chalop didn't begin by talking about the Boy Scouts or the Jamboree in Europe or what it was he wanted. He talked in terms of what interested the other man. Now here's the result. Presently, the man I was interviewing said, Oh, by the way, what was it you wanted to see me about? So I told him. To my vast surprise, Mr. Chaliff continues, he not only granted immediately what I asked for, but much more. I'd asked him to send only one boy to Europe, but he sent five boys and myself, gave me a letter of credit for $1,000, and told us to stay in Europe for seven weeks. He also gave me letters of introduction to his branch presidents, putting them at our service. And he himself met us in Paris and showed us the town. Since then, he's given jobs to some of the boys whose parents were in want, and he's still active in our group. Yet I know if I hadn't found out what he was interested in and got him warmed up first, I wouldn't have found him one-tenth as easy to approach. Is this a valuable technique to use in business? Is it? Let's see. Take Henry G. Duvernoy of Duvernoy & Sons, a wholesale baking firm in New York. Mr. Duvernoy had been trying to sell bread to a certain New York hotel. He'd called on the manager every week for four years. He went to the same social affairs the manager attended. He even took rooms in the hotel and lived there in order to get the business. But he failed. Then, said Mr. Duvernoy, after studying human relations, I resolved to change my tactics. I decided to find out what interested this man, what caught his enthusiasm. 
I discovered he belonged to a society of hotel executives called the Hotel Greeters of America. He not only belonged, but his bubbling enthusiasm had made him president of the organization and president of the International Greeters. No matter where its conventions were held, he would be there. So when I saw him the next day, I began talking about the Greeters. What a response I got. What a response. He talked to me for half an hour about the greeters, his tones vibrant with enthusiasm. I could plainly see that this society was not only his hobby, it was the passion of his life. Before I left his office, he had sold me a membership in his organization. In the meantime, I'd said nothing about bread, but a few days later, a steward of his hotel phoned me to come over with samples and prices. I don't know what you did to the old boy, the steward greeted me, but he sure is sold on you. Think of it. I'd been drumming at that man for four years trying to get his business, and I'd still be drumming at him if I hadn't finally taken the trouble to find out what he was interested in and what he enjoyed talking about. Edward E. Harriman of Hagerstown, Maryland, chose to live in the beautiful Cumberland Valley of Maryland after he completed his military service. Unfortunately, at that time, there were few jobs available in the area. A little research uncovered the fact that a number of companies in the area were either owned or controlled by an unusual business maverick, R.J. Funkhauser, whose rise from poverty to riches intrigued Mr. Harriman. However, he was known for being inaccessible to job seekers. Mr. Harriman wrote, I interviewed a number of people and found out that his major interest was anchored in his drive for power and money. Since he protected himself from people like me by use of a dedicated and stern secretary, I studied her interests and goals, and only then I paid an unannounced visit at her office. She had been Mr. Funkhauser's orbiting satellite for about 15 years. When I told her I had a proposition for him, which might translate itself into financial and political success for him, she became enthused. I also conversed with her about her constructive participation in his success. After this conversation, she arranged for me to meet Mr. Funkhauser. I entered his huge and impressive office, determined not to ask directly for a job. He was seated behind a large carved desk and thundered at me, How about it, young man? I said, Mr. Funkhauser, I believe I can make money for you. He immediately rose and invited me to sit in one of the large upholstered chairs. I enumerated my ideas and the qualifications I had to realize these ideas, as well as how they would contribute to his personal success and that of his businesses. R.J., as he has become known to me, hired me at once, and for over 20 years, I have grown in his enterprises, and we both have prospered. Talking in terms of the other person's interests pays off for both parties. Howard Z. Herzig, a leader in the field of employee communications, has always followed this principle. When asked what reward he got from it, Mr. Herzig responded that he not only received a different reward from each person, but that in general, the reward had been an enlargement of his life each time he spoke to someone. Principle 5. Talk in terms of the other person's interests. Chapter 6. How to make people like you instantly. I was waiting in line to register a letter at the post office at 33rd Street and 8th Avenue in New York. I noticed that the clerk appeared to be bored with the job, weighing envelopes, handing out stamps, making change, issuing receipts, the same monotonous grind year after year. So I said to myself, I'm going to try to make that clerk like me. Obviously, to make him like me, I must say something nice, and not about myself, but about him. So I asked myself, what is there about him that I can honestly admire? That is sometimes a hard question to answer, especially with strangers. But in this case, it happened to be easy. I instantly saw something I admired no end. So while he was weighing my envelope, I remarked with enthusiasm, I certainly wish I had your head of hair. He looked up, half startled, his face beaming with smiles. Well, it isn't as good as it used to be, he said modestly. I assured him that although it might have lost some of its pristine glory, nevertheless it was still magnificent. He was immensely pleased. We carried on a pleasant little conversation, and the last thing he said to me was, 
Many people have admired my hair. I'll bet that person went out to lunch that day walking on air. I'll bet he went home that night and told his wife about it. I'll bet he looked in the mirror and said, it is a beautiful head of hair. I told this story once in public, and a man asked me afterward, what did you want to get out of him? What was I trying to get out of him? What was I trying to get out of him? If we are so contemptibly selfish that we can't radiate a little happiness and pass on a bit of honest appreciation without trying to get something out of the other person in return, if our souls are no bigger than sour crab apples, we shall meet with the failure we so richly deserve. Oh yes, I did want something out of that chap. I wanted something priceless, and I got it. I got the feeling that I had done something for him without his being able to do anything whatever in return for me. That's a feeling that flows and sings in your memory long after the incident is past. There's one all-important law of human conduct. If we obey that law, we shall almost never get into trouble. In fact, that law, if obeyed, will bring us countless friends and constant happiness. But the very instant we break the law, we shall get into endless trouble. The law is this. Always make the other person feel important. John Dewey, as we have already noted, said that the desire to be important is the deepest urge in human nature. And William James said, the deepest principle in human nature is the craving to be appreciated. As I have already pointed out, it is this urge that differentiates us from the animals. It is this urge that has been responsible for civilization itself. Philosophers have been speculating on the rules of human relationships for thousands of years, and out of all that speculation, there has evolved only one important precept. It is not new. It is as old as history. Zoroaster taught it to his followers in Persia 2,500 years ago. Confucius preached it in China 24 centuries ago. Lao Tse, the founder of Taoism, taught it to his disciples in the Valley of the Han. Buddha preached it on the bank of the Holy Ganges 500 years before Christ. The sacred books of Hinduism taught it a thousand years before that. Jesus taught it among the stony hills of Judea 19 centuries ago. Jesus summed it up in one thought, probably the most important rule in the world. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. You want the approval of those with whom you come in contact. You want recognition of your true worth. You want a feeling that you are important in your little world. You don't want to listen to cheap, insincere flattery, but you do crave sincere appreciation. You want your friends and associates to be, as Charles Schwab put it, hearty in their approbation and lavish in their praise. All of us want that. So let's obey the golden rule and give unto others what we would have others give unto us. How? When? Where? The answer is all the time, everywhere. David G. Smith of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, told one of our classes how he handled a delicate situation when he was asked to take charge of the refreshment booth at a charity concert. The night of the concert, I arrived at the park and found two elderly ladies in a very bad humor standing next to the refreshment stand. Apparently, each thought that she was in charge of this project. As I stood there pondering what to do, one of the members of the sponsoring committee appeared and handed me a cash box and thanked me for taking over the project. She introduced Rose and Jane as my helpers and then ran off. A great silence ensued, and realizing that the cash box was a symbol of authority of sorts, I gave the box to Rose and explained that I might not be able to keep the money straight and that if she took care of it, I'd feel better. I then suggested to Jane that she show two teenagers who'd been assigned to refreshments how to operate the soda machine, and I asked her to be responsible for that part of the project. The evening was very enjoyable, with Rose happily counting the money, Jane supervising the teenagers, and me enjoying the concert. You don't have to wait until you're ambassador to France or chairman of the Clambake Committee of your lodge before you use this philosophy of appreciation. You can work magic with it almost every day. If, for example, the waitress brings us mashed potatoes when we have ordered french fries, let's say 
I'm sorry to trouble you, but I prefer French fried. She'll probably reply, no trouble at all, and will be glad to change the potatoes because we have shown respect for her. Little phrases such as, I'm sorry to trouble you, would you be so kind, won't you please, would you mind, thank you. Little courtesies like these oil the cogs of the monotonous grind of everyday life, and incidentally, they're the hallmarks of good breeding. Let's take another illustration. Hall Caine's novels, The Christian, The Deemster, The Manxman, among them, were all bestsellers in the early part of this century. Millions of people read his novels, countless millions. He was the son of a blacksmith. He never had more than eight years of schooling in his life, yet when he died, he was the richest literary man of his time. The story goes like this. Hall Caine loved sonnets and ballads, so he devoured all of Dante Gabriel Rossetti's poetry. He even wrote a lecture chanting the praises of Rossetti's artistic achievement and sent a copy to Rossetti himself. Rossetti was delighted. Any young man who has such an exalted opinion of my ability, Rossetti probably said to himself, must be brilliant. So Rossetti invited this blacksmith's son to come to London and act as his secretary. That was the turning point in Hall Caine's life, for in his new position he met the literary artists of the day. Profiting by their advice and inspired by their encouragement, he launched upon a career that emblazoned his name across the sky. His home, Griba Castle on the Isle of Man, became a mecca for tourists from the far corners of the world, and he left a multi-million dollar estate. Yet who knows, he might have died poor and unknown had he not written an essay expressing his admiration for a famous man. Such is the power, the stupendous power, of sincere, heartfelt appreciation. Rossetti considered himself important. That is not strange. Almost everyone considers himself important, very important. The life of many a person could probably be changed if only someone would make him feel important. Ronald J. Rowland, who is one of the instructors of our course in California, is also a teacher of arts and crafts. He wrote to us about a student named Chris in his beginning crafts class. Chris was a very quiet, shy boy, lacking in self-confidence, the kind of student that often does not receive the attention he deserves. I also teach an advanced class that had grown to be somewhat of a status symbol and a privilege for a student to have earned the right to be in it. On Wednesday, Chris was diligently working at his desk. I really felt there was a hidden fire deep inside him. I asked Chris if he'd like to be in the advanced class. How I wish I could express the look in Chris's face, the emotions in that shy 14-year-old boy trying to hold back his tears. Who, me, Mr. Rowland? Am I good enough? Yes, Chris, you're good enough. I had to leave at that point because tears were coming to my eyes. As Chris walked out of the class that day, seemingly two inches taller, he looked at me with bright blue eyes and said in a positive voice, Thank you, Mr. Rowland. Chris taught me a lesson I will never forget. Our deep desire to feel important. To help me never forget this rule, I made a sign which reads, You are important. And this sign hangs in the front of the classroom for all to see and to remind me that each student I face is equally important. The unvarnished truth is that almost all the people you meet feel themselves superior to you in some way, and a sure way to their hearts is to let them realize in some subtle way that you recognize their importance and recognize it sincerely. Remember what Emerson said, Every man I meet is my superior in some way. In that, I learn of him. And the pathetic part of it is that frequently those who have the least justification for a feeling of achievement bolster up their egos by a show of tumult and conceit which is truly nauseating. As Shakespeare put it, man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as make the angels weep. I'm going to tell you how business people in my own courses have applied these principles with remarkable results. Let's take the case of a Connecticut attorney. Because of his relatives, he prefers not to have his name mentioned. Shortly after joining the course, Mr. R. drove to Long Island with his wife to visit some of her relatives. 
She left him to chat with an old aunt of hers and then rushed off by herself to visit some of the younger relatives. Since he soon had to give a speech professionally on how he applied the principles of appreciation, he thought he would gain some worthwhile experience talking with the elderly lady. So he looked around the house to see what he could honestly admire. Well, this house was built about 1890, wasn't it? he inquired. Yes, she replied. That's precisely the year it was built. It reminds me of the house I was born in, he said. It's beautiful, well built, roomy. You know, they don't build houses like this anymore. You're right, the old lady agreed. The young folks nowadays don't care for beautiful homes. All they want is a small apartment, and then they go off gadding about in their automobiles. This is a dream house, she said, in a voice vibrating with tender memories. This house was built with love. My husband and I dreamed about it for years before we built it. We didn't have an architect. We planned it all ourselves. She showed Mr. R. about the house, and he expressed his hearty admiration for the beautiful treasures she'd picked up in her travels and cherished over a lifetime. Paisley shawls, an old English tea set, Wedgwood china, French beds and chairs, Italian paintings and silk draperies that had once hung in a French chateau. After showing Mr. R. through the house, she took him out to the garage. There, jacked up on blocks, was a Packard car in mint condition. My husband bought that car for me shortly before he passed on, she said softly. I have never ridden in it since his death. You appreciate nice things, and I'm going to give this car to you. Why, Auntie, he said, you overwhelm me. I appreciate your generosity, of course, but I couldn't possibly accept it. I'm not even a relative of yours. I have a new car, and you have many relatives that would like to have that Packard. Relatives, she exclaimed. Yes, I had relatives who were just waiting till I die so they can get that car, but they are not going to get it. If you don't want to give it to them, you could very easily sell it to a second-hand dealer, he told her. Sell it, she cried. Do you think I would sell this car? Do you think I could stand to see strangers riding up and down the street in that car, that car that my husband bought for me? I wouldn't dream of selling it. I'm going to give it to you. You appreciate beautiful things. He tried to get out of accepting the car, but he couldn't without hurting her feelings. This lady, left all alone in the big house with her paisley shawls, her French antiques, and her memories, was starving for a little recognition. She had once been young and beautiful and sought after. She had once built a house warm with love and had collected things from all over Europe to make it beautiful. Now, in the isolated loneliness of old age, she craved a little human warmth, a little genuine appreciation, and no one gave it to her. And when she found it, like a spring in a desert, her gratitude couldn't adequately express itself with anything less than the gift of her cherished Packard. Let's take another case. Donald M. McMahon, who was superintendent of Lewis and Valentine, nurserymen and landscape architects in Rye, New York, related this incident. Shortly after I attended the talk on how to win friends and influence people, I was landscaping the estate of a famous attorney. The owner came out to give me a few instructions about where he wished to plant a mass of rhododendrons and azaleas. I said, Judge, you have a lovely hobby. I've been admiring your beautiful dogs. I understand you win a lot of blue ribbons every year at the show at Madison Square Garden. And the effect of this little expression of appreciation was striking. Yes, the judge replied, I do have a lot of fun with my dogs. Would you like to see my kennel? He spent almost an hour showing me his dogs and the prizes they'd won. He even brought out their pedigrees and explained about the bloodlines responsible for such beauty and intelligence. Finally, turning to me, he asked, Do you have any small children? Well, yes, I do, I replied. I have a son. Well, wouldn't he like a puppy, the judge inquired. Well, yes, he'd be tickled pink. All right, I'm going to give him one, the judge announced. He started to tell me how to feed the puppy. And then he paused. You'll forget if I tell you, I'll write it out. So the judge went in the house, typed out the pedigree and feeding instructions, and gave me a puppy worth several hundred dollars and an hour and 15 minutes of his valuable time, largely because I'd expressed my honest admiration for his hobby and achievements. 
George Eastman of Kodak fame invented the transparent film that made motion pictures possible, amassed a fortune of $100 million, and made himself one of the most famous businessmen on earth. Yet in spite of all these tremendous accomplishments, he craved little recognitions, even as you and I. To illustrate, when Eastman was building the Eastman School of Music and also Kilbourne Hall in Rochester, James Adamson, then president of the Superior Seating Company of New York, wanted to get the order to supply the theater chairs for these buildings. Phoning the architect, Mr. Adamson made an appointment to see Mr. Eastman in Rochester. When Adamson arrived, the architect said, I know you want to get this order, but I can tell you right now that you won't stand a ghost of a show if you take more than five minutes of George Eastman's time. He's a strict disciplinarian. He's very busy, so tell your story quickly and get out. Adamson was prepared to do just that. And when he was ushered into the room, he saw Mr. Eastman bending over a pile of papers at his desk. Presently, Mr. Eastman looked up, removed his glasses, and walked toward the architect and Mr. Adamson, saying, Good morning, gentlemen. What can I do for you? And the architect introduced them, and then Mr. Adamson said, While we've been waiting for you, Mr. Eastman, I've been admiring your office. I wouldn't mind working in a room like this myself. I'm in the interior woodworking business, and I never saw a more beautiful office in all my life. And George Eastman replied, You remind me of something I had almost forgotten. It is beautiful, isn't it? I enjoyed it a great deal when it was first built, but I come down here now with a lot of other things on my mind and sometimes don't even see the room for weeks at a time. Adamson walked over and rubbed his hand across a panel. And this is an English oak, isn't it? A little different texture from Italian oak. Yes, Eastman replied. Imported English oak. It was selected for me by a friend who specializes in fine woods. And then Eastman showed him about the room commenting on the proportions, the coloring, the hand carving, and other effects he'd helped to plan and execute. While drifting about the room, admiring the woodwork, they paused before a window, and George Eastman, in his modest, soft-spoken way, pointed out some of the institutions through which he was trying to help humanity, the University of Rochester, the General Hospital, the Homeopathic Hospital, the Friendly Home, the Children's Hospital. Mr. Adamson congratulated him warmly on the idealistic way he was using his wealth to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Presently, George Eastman unlocked a glass case and pulled out the first camera he had ever owned, an invention he had bought from an Englishman. Adamson questioned him at length about his early struggles to get started in business. Mr. Eastman spoke with real feeling about the poverty of his childhood telling how his widowed mother had kept a boarding house while he clerked in an insurance office. The terror of poverty haunted him day and night, and he resolved to make enough money so that his mother wouldn't have to work. Mr. Adamson drew him out with further questions and listened, absorbed, while he related the story of his experiments with dry photographic plates. He told how he had worked in an office all day and sometimes experimented all night, taking only brief naps while the chemicals were working, sometimes working and sleeping in his clothes for 72 hours at a stretch. James Adamson had been ushered into Eastman's office at 10.15 and had been warned that he must not take more than five minutes, but an hour had passed, and then two hours passed, and they were still talking. Finally, George Eastman turned to Adamson and said, the last time I was in Japan, I bought some chairs, brought them home and put them on my sun porch, but the sun peeled the paint. So I went downtown the other day and bought some paint and painted the chairs myself. Wouldn't you like to see what sort of a job I can do painting chairs? All right, come up to my home and have lunch with me and I'll show you. The order for the seats amounted to $90,000. Who do you suppose got the order? James Adamson or one of his competitors. From the time of this story until Mr. Eastman's death, he and James Adamson were close friends. Claude Marais, a restaurant owner in Rouen, France, used this principle and saved his restaurant the loss of a key employee. This woman had been in his employ for five years and was a vital link between Monsieur Marais and his staff of 21 people. He was shocked to receive a registered letter from her advising him of her resignation.
Monsieur Moray reported. I was very surprised and even more disappointed because I was under the impression that I had been fair to her and receptive to her needs. Inasmuch as she was a friend as well as an employee, I probably had taken her too much for granted and maybe was even more demanding of her than of other employees. I could not, of course, accept this resignation without some explanation. I took her aside and said, Paulette, you must understand that I cannot accept your resignation. You mean a great deal to me and to this company, and you are as important to the success of this restaurant as I am. I repeated this in front of the entire staff and invited her to my home and reiterated my confidence in her with my family present. Paulette withdrew her resignation, and today I can rely on her as never before. I frequently reinforce this by expressing my appreciation for what she does and showing her how important she is to me and to the restaurant. Talk to people about themselves, said Disraeli, one of the shrewdest men who ever ruled the British Empire. Talk to people about themselves, and they will listen for hours. Principle six, make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. In a nutshell, six ways to make people like you. Principle one, become genuinely interested in other people. Principle two, smile. Principle three, remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Principle four, be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. Principle five, talk in terms of the other person's interests. Principle six, make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. Part three, how to win people to your way of thinking. Chapter one, you can't win an argument. Shortly after the close of World War I, I learned an invaluable lesson one night in London. I was manager at the time for Sir Ross Smith. During the war, Sir Ross had been the Australian ace out in Palestine. And shortly after peace was declared, he astonished the world by flying halfway round it in 30 days. No such feat had ever been attempted before. It created a tremendous sensation. The Australian government awarded him $50,000. The King of England knighted him. And for a while, he was the most talked about man under the Union Jack. I was attending a banquet one night given in Sir Ross's honor, and during the dinner, the man sitting next to me told a humorous story which hinged on the quotation, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. And the raconteur mentioned that the quotation was from the Bible. He was wrong, I knew that. I knew it positively. There couldn't be the slightest doubt about it. And so, to get a feeling of importance and display my superiority, I appointed myself an unsolicited and unwelcome committee of one to correct him. He stuck to his guns. What? From Shakespeare? Impossible. Absurd. That quotation was from the Bible, and he knew it. And the storyteller was sitting on my right, and Frank Gammond, an old friend of mine, was seated at my left. Mr. Gammond had devoted years to the study of Shakespeare, so the storyteller and I agreed to submit the question to Mr. Gammond. Mr. Gammond listened. He kicked me under the table and then said, Dale, you're wrong. The gentleman is right. It is from the Bible. On our way home that night, I said to Mr. Gammond, Frank, you know that quotation was from Shakespeare. Yes, of course, he replied. Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2. But we were guests at a festive occasion, my dear Dale. Why prove to a man that he is wrong? Is that going to make him like you? Why not let him save his face? 
He didn't ask for your opinion. He didn't want it. Why argue with him? Always avoid the acute angle. The man who said that taught me a lesson I'll never forget. I'd not only made the storyteller uncomfortable, but it put my friend in an embarrassing situation. How much better it would have been had I not become argumentative. It was a sorely needed lesson because I'd been an inveterate arguer. During my youth, I'd argued with my brother about everything under the Milky Way. When I went to college, I studied logic and argumentation and went in for debating contests. Talk about being from Missouri. I was born there. I had to be shown. Later, I taught debating and argumentation in New York. And once, I'm ashamed to admit, I planned to write a book on the subject. Since then, I have listened to, engaged in, and watched the effects of thousands of arguments. As a result of all this, I've come to the conclusion that there's only one way under high heaven to get the best of an argument, and that is to avoid it. Avoid it as you would avoid rattlesnakes and earthquakes. Nine times out of ten, an argument ends with each of the contestants more firmly convinced than ever that he is absolutely right. You can't win an argument. You can't because if you lose it, you lose it. And if you win it, you lose it. Why? Well, suppose you triumph over the other man and shoot his argument full of holes and prove that he is non-composmentous. Then what? You will feel fine. But what about him? You've made him feel inferior. You've hurt his pride. He will resent your triumph. And a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Years ago, Patrick J. O'Hare joined one of my classes. He had had little education, and how he loved a scrap. He had once been a chauffeur, and he came to me because he had been trying, without much success, to sell trucks. A little questioning brought out the fact that he was continually scrapping with and antagonizing the very people he was trying to do business with. If a prospect said anything derogatory about the trucks he was selling, Pat saw red and was right at the customer's throat. Pat won a lot of arguments in those days. As he said to me afterward, I often walked out of an office saying, I told that bird something. Sure, I told him something, but I hadn't sold him anything. My first problem was not to teach Patrick J. O'Hare to talk. My immediate task was to train him to refrain from talking and to avoid verbal fights. Mr. O'Hare became one of the star salesmen for the White Motor Company in New York. How did he do it? Now here's his story in his own words. If I walk into a buyer's office now and he says, What? A white truck? They're no good. I wouldn't take one if he gave it to me. I'm going to buy the Hoosit truck. I say, the Hoosit's a good truck. If you buy the Hoosit, you'll never make a mistake. The Hoosits are made by a fine company and sold by good people. He's speechless then. There's no room for argument. If he says, the Hoosit's the best, and I say, sure it is, he has to stop. He can't keep on all afternoon saying, it's the best, when I'm agreeing with him. We then get off the subject of the Hoosit, and I begin to talk about the good points of the white truck. There was a time when a remark like his first one would have made me see scarlet and red and orange. I'd start arguing against the Hoosit, and the more I argued against it, the more my prospect argued in favor of it. The more he argued, the more he sold himself on my competitor's product. As I look back now, I wonder how I was ever able to sell anything. I lost years of my life in scrapping and arguing. I keep my mouth shut now. It pays. As wise old Ben Franklin used to say, if you argue and rankle and contradict, you may achieve a victory sometimes, but it will be an empty victory because you will never get your opponent's goodwill. So figure it out for yourself. Which would you rather have, an academic, theatrical victory or a person's goodwill? You can seldom have both. The Boston Transcript once printed this bit of significant doggerel. Here lies the body of William J., who died maintaining his right of way. He was right, dead right, as he sped along, but he's just as dead as if he were wrong. You may be right, dead right, as you speed along in your argument, but as far as changing another's mind is concerned, you will probably be just as futile as if you were wrong. Frederick S. Parsons, an income tax consultant, had been disputing and wrangling for an hour with a government tax inspector. An item of $9,000 was at stake. 
Mr. Parsons claimed that this $9,000 was in reality a bad debt, that it would never be collected, that it ought not to be taxed. Bad debt, my eye, retorted the inspector. It must be taxed. This inspector was cold, arrogant, and stubborn, Mr. Parsons said as he told the story of the class. Reason was wasted, and so are facts. The longer we argued, the more stubborn he became. So I decided to avoid argument, change the subject, and give him appreciation. I said, I suppose this is a very petty matter in comparison with the really important and difficult decisions you're required to make. I've made a study of taxation myself, but I've had to get my knowledge from books. You're getting yours from the firing line of experience. I sometimes wish I had a job like yours. It would teach me a lot. And I meant every word I said. Well, the inspector straightened up in his chair, leaned back and talked for a long time about his work, telling me of the clever frauds he had uncovered. His tone gradually became friendly, and presently he was telling me about his children. As he left, he advised me that he would consider my problem further and give me his decision in a few days. He called at my office three days later and informed me that he had decided to leave the tax return exactly as it was filed. Now, this tax inspector was demonstrating one of the most common of human frailties. He wanted a feeling of importance. And as long as Mr. Parsons argued with him, he got his feeling of importance by loudly asserting his authority. But as soon as his importance was admitted, and the argument stopped, and he was permitted to expand his ego, he became a sympathetic and kindly human being. Buddha said, hatred is never ended by hatred, but by love. And a misunderstanding is never ended by an argument, but by tact, diplomacy, conciliation, and a sympathetic desire to see the other person's viewpoint. Lincoln once reprimanded a young army officer for indulging in a violent controversy with an associate. No man who is resolved to make the most of himself, said Lincoln, can spare time for personal contention. Still less can he afford to take the consequences, including the vitiation of his temper and the loss of self-control. Yield larger things to which you show no more than equal rights, and yield lesser ones, though clearly your own. Better give our path to a dog than be bitten by him in contesting for the right. Even killing the dog would not cure the bite. In an article in Bits and Pieces, some suggestions are made on how to keep a disagreement from becoming an argument. Welcome the disagreement. Remember the slogan, when two partners always agree, one of them is not necessary. If there is some point you haven't thought about, be thankful if it is brought to your attention. Perhaps this disagreement is your opportunity to be corrected before you make a serious mistake. Distrust your first instinctive impression. Our first natural reaction in a disagreeable situation is to be defensive. Be careful. Keep calm and watch out for your first reaction. It may be you at your worst, not your best. Control your temper. Remember, you can measure the size of a person by what makes him or her angry. Listen first. Give your opponents a chance to talk. Let them finish. Do not resist, defend, or debate. This only raises barriers. Try to build bridges of understanding. Don't build higher barriers of misunderstanding. Look for areas of agreement. When you have heard your opponents out, dwell first on the points and areas on which you agree. Be honest. Look for areas where you can admit error and say so. Apologize for your mistakes. It will help disarm your opponents and reduce defensiveness. Promise to think over your opponents' ideas and study them carefully, and mean it. Your opponents may be right. It is a lot easier at this stage to agree to think about their points than to move rapidly ahead and find yourself in a position where your opponents can say, we tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. Thank your opponents sincerely for their interest. Anyone who takes the time to disagree with you is interested in the same things you are. Think of them as people who really want to help you, and you may turn your opponents into friends. Postpone action to give both sides time to think through the problem. 
suggest that a new meeting be held later that day or the next day when all the facts may be brought to bear. In preparation for this meeting, ask yourself some hard questions. Could my opponents be right? Partly right? Is there truth or merit in their position or argument? Is my reaction one that will relieve the problem, or will it just relieve any frustration? Will my reaction drive my opponents further away or draw them closer to me? Will my reaction elevate the estimation good people have of me? Will I win or lose? What price will I have to pay if I win? If I am quiet about it, will the disagreement blow over? Is this difficult situation an opportunity for me? Opera tenor Jan Pierce, after he was married nearly 50 years, once said, My wife and I made a pact a long time ago, and we've kept it no matter how angry we've grown with each other. When one yells, the other should listen, because when two people yell, there is no communication, just noise and bad vibrations. Principle one, the only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. Chapter two, a sure way of making enemies and how to avoid it. When Theodore Roosevelt was in the White House, he confessed that if he could be right 75% of the time, he would reach the highest measure of his expectation. If that was the highest rating that one of the most distinguished men of the 20th century could hope to obtain, what about you and me? If you can be sure of being right only 55% of the time, you can go down to Wall Street and make a million dollars a day. If you can't be sure of being right even 55% of the time, why should you tell other people they are wrong? You can tell people they are wrong by a look or an intonation or a gesture, just as eloquently as you can in words. And if you tell them they are wrong, do you make them want to agree with you? Never. For you've struck a direct blow at their intelligence, judgment, pride, and self-respect. That will make them want to strike back but it will never make them want to change their minds. You may hurl at them all the logic of a Plato or an Immanuel Kant, but you will not alter their opinions, for you have hurt their feelings. Never begin by announcing, I am going to prove so-and-so to you. Now, that's bad. That's tantamount to saying, I'm smarter than you are. I'm going to tell you a thing or two and make you change your mind. That is a challenge. It arouses opposition and makes the listener want to battle with you before you even start. It is difficult, under even the most benign conditions, to change people's minds, so why make it harder? Why handicap yourself? If you're going to prove anything, don't let anybody know it. Do it so subtly, so adroitly, that no one will feel that you are doing it. This was expressed succinctly by Alexander Pope. Men must be taught as if you taught them not, and things unknown proposed as things forgot. Over 300 years ago, Galileo said, you cannot teach a man anything. You can only help him to find it within himself. As Lord Chesterfield said to his son, be wiser than other people if you can, but do not tell them so. And Socrates said repeatedly to his followers in Athens, one thing only I know, and that is that I know nothing. Well, I can't hope to be any smarter than Socrates, so I have quit telling people they are wrong, and I find that it pays. If a person makes a statement that you think is wrong, yes, even that you know is wrong, isn't it better to begin by saying, well, now, look, I thought otherwise, but I may be wrong. I frequently am, and if I am wrong, I want to be put right. Let's examine the facts. There's magic, positive magic in such phrases as, I may be wrong, I frequently am, let's examine the facts. Nobody in the heavens above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth will ever object to your saying, I may be wrong, let's examine the facts. One of our class members who used this approach in dealing with customers was Harold Renke, a Dodge dealer in Billings, Montana. He reported that because of the pressures of the automobile business, he was often hard-boiled and callous when dealing with customers' complaints. This caused flared tempers, loss of business, and general unpleasantness. He told his class, Recognizing that this was getting me nowhere fast, I tried a new tack. I'd say something like this. 
Our dealership has made so many mistakes that I'm frequently ashamed. We may have erred in your case, so tell me about it. Now, this approach becomes quite disarming, and by the time the customer releases his feelings, he's usually much more reasonable when it comes to settling the matter. In fact, several customers have thanked me for having such an understanding attitude, and two of them have even brought in friends to buy new cars. In this highly competitive market, we need more of this type of customer, and I believe that showing respect for all customers' opinions and treating them diplomatically and courteously will help beat the competition. You will never get into trouble by admitting that you may be wrong. That will stop all argument and inspire your opponent to be just as fair and open and broad-minded as you are. It will make him want to admit that he, too, may be wrong. If you know positively that a person is wrong and you bluntly tell him or her so, what happens? Let me illustrate. Mr. S., a young New York attorney, once argued a rather important case before the United States Supreme Court. Lunstgarden versus Fleet Corporation, 280 U.S. 320. The case involved a considerable sum of money and an important question of law. During the argument, one of the Supreme Court justices said to him, The statute of limitations in admiralty law is six years, is it not? Mr. S. stopped, stared at the justice for a moment, and then he said bluntly, Your Honor, there is no statute of limitations in admiralty. A hush fell on the court, said Mr. S., as he related his experience to one of my classes, and the temperature in the room seemed to drop to zero. I was right, the justice was wrong, and I had told him so. But did that make him friendly? No. I still believe that I had the law on my side, and I know that I spoke better than I ever spoke before, but I didn't persuade. I made the enormous blunder of telling a very learned and famous man that he was wrong. A few people are logical, most of us are prejudiced and biased, most of us are blighted with preconceived notions, with jealousy, suspicion, fear, envy, and pride. And most citizens don't want to change their minds about their religion or their haircut or communism or their favorite movie star. So if you're inclined to tell people they're wrong, please review the following paragraph every morning before breakfast. It's from James Harvey Robinson's enlightening book, the mind in the making. We sometimes find ourselves changing our minds without any resistance or heavy emotion. But if we are told we are wrong, we resent the imputation and harden our hearts. We are incredibly heedless in the formation of our beliefs, but find ourselves filled with an illicit passion for them when anyone proposes to rob us of their companionship. It is obviously not the ideas themselves that are dear to us, but our self-esteem which is threatened. The little word, my, is the most important one in human affairs, and properly to reckon with, it is the beginning of wisdom. It has the same force, whether it is my dinner, my dog, and my house, or my father, my country, and my God. We not only resent the imputation that our watch is wrong, or our car shabby, but that our conception of the canals of Mars, of the pronunciation of Epictetus, of the medicinal value of Salicin, or of the date of Sargon I, is subject to revision. We like to continue to believe what we have been accustomed to accept as true, and the resentment aroused when doubt is cast upon any of our assumptions leads us to seek every manner of excuse for clinging to it. The result is that most of our so-called reasoning consists in finding arguments for going on believing as we already do. Carl Rogers, the eminent psychologist, wrote in his book On Becoming a Person. I have found it of enormous value when I can permit myself to understand the other person. The way in which I have worded this statement may seem strange to you. Is it necessary to permit oneself to understand another? I think it is. Our first reaction to most of the statements which we hear from other people is an evaluation or judgment rather than an understanding of it. When someone expresses some feeling, attitude, or belief, our tendency is almost immediately to feel, that's right, or that's stupid, that's abnormal, that's unreasonable, that's incorrect, that's not nice. 
very rarely do we permit ourselves to understand precisely what the meaning of the statement is to the other person. I once employed an interior decorator to make some draperies for my home. And when the bill arrived, I was dismayed. A few days later, a friend dropped in and looked at the draperies. The price was mentioned, and she exclaimed with a note of triumph, What? That's awful. I'm afraid he put one over on you. A true? <laughs> yes, she told the truth. But few people like to listen to truths that reflect on their judgment. So being human, I tried to defend myself. I pointed out that the best is eventually the cheapest, that one can't expect to get quality and artistic taste at bargain basement prices, and so on. The next day, another friend dropped in, admired the draperies, bubbled over with enthusiasm, and expressed a wish that she could afford such exquisite creations for her home. My reaction was totally different. Well, to tell you the truth, I said, I can't afford them myself. I paid too much. I'm sorry I ordered them. When we're wrong, we may admit it to ourselves, and if we're handled gently and tactfully, we may admit it to others, and even take pride in our frankness and broad-mindedness. But not if someone else is trying to ram the unpalatable fact down our esophagus. Horace Greeley, the most famous editor in America during the time of the Civil War, disagreed violently with Lincoln's policies. He believed that he could drive Lincoln into agreeing with him by a campaign of argument, ridicule, and abuse. He waged this bitter campaign month after month, year after year. In fact, he wrote a brutal, bitter, sarcastic, and personal attack on President Lincoln the night Booth shot him. But did all this bitterness make Lincoln agree with Greeley? Not at all. Ridicule and abuse never do. If you want some excellent suggestions about dealing with people and managing yourself and improving your personality, read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, one of the most fascinating life stories ever written, one of the classics of American literature. Ben Franklin tells how he conquered the iniquitous habit of argument and transformed himself into one of the most able, suave, and diplomatic men in American history. One day, when Ben Franklin was a blundering youth, an old Quaker friend took him aside and lashed him with a few stinging truths, something like this. Ben, you are impossible. Your opinions have a slap in them for everyone who differs with you. They have become so offensive that nobody cares for them. Your friends find they enjoy themselves better when you are not around. You know so much that no man can tell you anything. Indeed, no man is going to try, for the effort would lead only to discomfort and hard work. So you are not likely ever to know any more than you do now, which is very little. One of the finest things I know about Ben Franklin is the way he accepted that smarting rebuke. He was big enough and wise enough to realize that it was true, to sense that he was headed for failure and social disaster. So he made a right-about face. He began immediately to change his insolent, opinionated ways. I made it a rule, said Franklin, to forbear all direct contradiction to the sentiment of others, and all positive assertion of my own. I even forbade myself the use of every word or expression in the language that imported a fixed opinion, such as certainly, undoubtedly, etc., and I adopted instead of them, I conceive, I apprehend, or I imagine a thing to be so, or so, or it so appears to me at present. When another asserted something that I thought an error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him abruptly and of showing immediately some absurdity in his proposition. And in answering, I began by observing that in certain cases of circumstances, his opinion would be right. But in the present case, there appeared or seemed to me some difference, etc. I soon found the advantage of this change in my manner. The conversations I engaged in went on more pleasantly. The modest way in which I proposed my opinions procured them a readier reception and less contradiction. I had less mortification when I was found to be in the wrong, and I more easily prevailed with others to give up their mistakes and join with me when I happened to be in the right. 
and this mode, which I at first put on with some violence to natural inclination, became at length so easy and so habitual to me that perhaps for these fifty years no one has ever heard a dogmatical expression escape me. And to this habit, after my character of integrity, I think it principally owing that I had earned so much weight with my fellow citizens when I proposed new institutions or alterations in the old, and so much influence in public councils when I became a member. For I was but a bad speaker, never eloquent, subject to much hesitation in my choice of words, hardly correct in language, and yet I generally carried my points. How do Ben Franklin's methods work in business? Let's take two examples. Catherine A. Allred of 